This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. AmeriCorps is on the chopping block in President Donald Trump's proposed budget. The community service program includes building affordable housing, helping military families file for benefits. AmeriCorps members also help out in schools. The president's proposal to cut the Corporation for National and Community Service, which funds AmeriCorps from the federal budget, would affect more than 11,000 schools nationwide, including in Colorado. Eric Gorski reports on this for Chalkbeat Colorado, where he is bureau chief. And Eric, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me, Ryan. So AmeriCorps has a strong presence in Denver public schools through something called City Year. Uh, What does that look like on the ground and in schools? Sure. So City Year is a program of AmeriCorps, and uh, these are basically young people, right, right out of college or still in college. Uh, They're really there as another set of eyes and hands for teachers. They come in before the first kids arrive, and they leave um, really after the last kid leaves. Uh, They provide things like math and English literacy help in the classroom. Uh, They also provide tutoring. They're there to really hold students accountable for attendance, making sure kids are showing up for school. They're holding them accountable accountable for behavior as well. They're really doing work in the highest needs classrooms, right, where uh, kids from from tough backgrounds, poor kids, um, really are posing a challenge to the public school system. Which schools did you visit? Sure. So I visited North High School uh, in, in northwest Denver where some AmeriCorps members who are always easy to spot, they're wearing their red jackets with their AmeriCorps uh, insignia on it, uh, were just kind of floating throughout the classroom, right? Uh, Finding kids who needed help and stopping and helping them. Uh, I think that a lot of people think of AmeriCorps members as volunteers, but there's actually um, payment here and schools do pay some for these services. How does the cost of bringing in AmeriCorps compare to, I don't know, hiring staff to take on these roles, though? That's right. They're not volunteers. That's sometimes, I think, a misconception. But I mean, the whole thing is based on the premise of national service, right? You give something of yourself, your country gives something back to you. And in this case, the core members are getting things like a stock stipends for living expenses, health insurance, uh, another $5,800 after they complete uh, to help pay for either additional education or to help pay off student loans. Now, the funding for these programs is a combination of the federal money, which you mentioned, but also support from private donors as well as the school districts that are Uh, making a decision to bring these people in. Principals are the ones that are making this decision and making these budget decisions. It costs about uh, $12,500 per member. So depending on the size of the team, we're looking at an outlay of about $100,000, $120,000. It's really pretty good value when you think about the number of people that you're getting in to do that kind of work. Versus hiring uh, someone not in AmeriCorps. Sure. Um, Hiring someone who are doing these things themselves will bring lots of added costs from having to pay for benefits to all the additional um, costs of having someone on staff. The principal, for instance, at North High School, what did he tell you about what the city year program means to the school, how integral it is and whether he could do without? Sure. So the principal at North, Scott Wolf, had a had a nice example of how city core members really help their kids. He talked about one afternoon 
uh, the city core member there pulled four struggling students out of an algebra classroom and kind of just out into the hallway. And he sat with them with a whiteboard explaining how to identify the intersection points of two variable equations, right? If these kids were in the classroom and lost, they would just sit there lost, right? Uh, this is a chance to pull them out and give them that extra attention that they need. Okay. So that's a sense of AmeriCorps and its Arm City year in Denver. Um, it also exists outside of the metro area, doesn't it? Oh, that's right. Uh, it has a pretty significant rural footprint as well. So despite having bipartisan support, this is not the first time the Corporation for National Community Service um, has been in danger of losing its funding. Yet some say that this time is different and that it could really mean that the program gets uh, defunded uh, altogether or to some extent. What's different about this time around? Sure. Um, this isn't the first time. Uh, this has long been a program that Republican budget hawks have kind of had in their sights. They just don't think that the government should have business in, in things like promoting service. Right. Let me say that in a statement the Trump administration wrote, it is not a core function of the federal government to promote voluntarism. Uh, we talked about the, the, the shades of gray there with voluntarism. Right, but he right. says, therefore, these programs should be eliminated. To the extent these activities have value, they should be supported by the private and nonprofit sectors. As you've said, Eric, they already are to some extent. Oh, that's true. I mean, what's different this time is that you've got a president who is serious about slimming down the size of government. And you have Republicans in control of, of both chambers of Congress. So uh, the thing about the Trump administration, as we've seen, is that you don't know what's going to happen. Something said yesterday might not be true tomorrow. So I mean, there is like intense lobbying going on uh, on the part of advocates, backers of programs like City Year, calling up congressmen, really putting on the for full court press as the budget comes closer to being actually discussed. You brought to the table anecdotes of this working in schools, but is there evidence to back up that, you know, students do better because AmeriCorps is in the classroom? Uh, yes, there is. Uh, there was a study done in 2015 that looked at three years' worth of educational outcomes in 22 cities, including Denver. And it found that schools that partner with City Year were up to three times more likely to improve on their, their state math and English tests. And in Denver, there was some specific evidence as well. Um, three quarters of the schools that have city core members moved up in the school district's kind of color-coded rating system. And that includes North, where I visited and mentioned the principal there. Uh, how might the threat of losing funding affect AmeriCorps? I mean, I think it's it's widely acknowledged that uh, President Trump's proposed budget is just that. It's a proposal. It still has to go through Congress. There's the lobbying you talked about, the reshaping. So it is something of a first volley in the back and forth. But is there something that even if this is an impressionistic document, um, the mere specter of its elimination winds up affecting, I don't know, in enrollment in the program or people's interest or people's thoughts about its future? What did you hear when you asked no, that question? Exactly. I think there is a concern that uh, as this is in such uncertain territory, that young people who might have considered it previously might be hesitating, backing off, uh, having taken kind of a wait-and-see approach. So but aside from the very direct funding threat, and just to be clear, if this federal money goes away, the program's done, right? This relies on, like I said earlier, money from districts, money from private donors. Uh, the investment of AmeriCorps into AmeriCorps from the federal government um, 
it's it's about a billion dollars a year, okay. right, uh, into these programs, and the leveraged money is actually above one billion dollars. So it's it's kind of a matching grant type of setup, but without that seed money, without that foundational money, the program just no longer exists. What what evidence do you have to say that? In other words, uh, if people feel the pain of its loss, won't they step up? I mean, that's well, certainly the idea. I'm 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 thinking behind some of the budget. Sure, box. sure. Um, I mean, I think that if you talk to the people with the agency, they make it pretty clear that without that foundation, the the, the matching money isn't there. So what you'll hear from the agency, what you'll hear from AmeriCorps is that without the federal money, then we're in trouble to the point of th- you know being threatened with extinction. So um, Eric Gorski, Bureau Chief of Chalkbeat, Colorado, I want to wrap up on an unrelated issue if we could. It's 420. This is a day that... Um, uh, those who embrace marijuana uh, celebrate it, uh, and certainly they do so in Colorado. Um, I thought it might be a nice opportunity to ask about how much money um, pot sales um, is generating for schools, because I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about where that money goes and how much it is. Could, could you leave us with that on 420? Sure. So I, I think that there's a big misconception in the public about how much pot money goes to support public education. During the Amendment 64 campaign, it was a big talking point, right? This was to legalize recreational marijuana. Right. It was a big talking point that this is going to help schools. Uh, In the end, it's just a sliver and it does not go ever to things like helping in in teacher – helping hire teachers or help do work in classrooms. Most of the money, it's through an excise tax. Most of the money goes to a construction fund um, called BEST that the state operates. It's a grant program. Districts have to apply. Uh, There are some barriers to districts being able to apply. And uh, in the end, the projects that it can fund are not going to be very huge capital projects. They're pretty small. Okay. And how does that differ from what you think people perceive about this money? I think that people think that the money just goes into a big pot. Uh, no pun intended, that would uh, go to schools in general that can be used for basically anything, including uh, given that that Colorado schools are under such financial pressure, uh, general operating expenses, when in fact it's very restricted and limited in most cases. Thanks for sharing your reporting with us. You're welcome. Eric Gorski, Bureau Chief of Chalkbeat Colorado. It's a nonprofit education news site. You can find a link to his reporting at cprnews.org. A rock climber will be added to emojis, those little pictures you can use instead of words when you text. Professional climber Sasha DeJulian of Boulder lobbied for this emoji. She even wound up modeling for it. Sasha joins me by phone from Spain, where she is, yes, climbing. Hopefully not at this very moment, but Sasha, welcome to the program. Hi, Ryan. How's it going? It's going well. Pleasure to have you on the show. Uh, I wonder what you've been using to convey the climbing message through emojis without an actual climbing emoji. (laughs) That's actually part of the reason that I wanted the climber emoji so badly. I always use the monkey. You use the monkey. I see. A creature that climbs. Yeah. Yeah. It's symbolic of a climber, but clearly not representative of us climbers in general. And I also use the mountain symbol. 
and you use the mountain symbol, which exists as well. So those two in combination. Why was it important for you to have a climbing emoji? You know, emojis are kind of this silly, on-the-surface part of our culture today. Um, In texting, I always use emojis, and I find that they're so much easier to communicate what I'm actually feeling or to add an additional sentiment to the words that I send in a text. And I just thought that there are other sports that exist on the emoji keyboard, and why not have a climber? Oh, that's right. Yeah, there's like soccer. I think there's a basketball, there's football. So you felt a bit left out. But not everyone gets their own <laughs> their own emoji. This this update later this year will include actually 69 new ones. Uh, I'm curious about the process here. How do you get the attention of the, um, this is called the Unicode Emoji Subcommittee. Of course, there's a, right. a body that governs this. How did you get their attention? So actually, the whole idea started on Twitter. I wrote a tweet, actual several several tweets um, about why is there no climber emoji, and I added get emoji and Emojipedia. And Jeremy Birch, who is the by title chief emoji operator, um, (laughs) got in contact with me. And I know it's like the dream title of anyone, in my opinion. (laughs) Um, And he said, hey, this is how you create an emoji if you want to get on board with it. And we kind of exchanged some direct direct messages from there. And then I sent him some photos to have an idea of what a climber looks like because he is on the board with the Unicode. the Unicode organization, which is essentially what decides which emojis will be admitted to the new um, keyboard and also the board that designs and creates the emojis. So a designer on their side ended up doing some sketches based off of some photos that I sent to them. And I collaborated with them about what exactly would convey rock climbing best. Yeah. In my opinion, it needed to be on a real rock surface because that's at the root of the sport. It's an outdoor activity. Um, showing all four limbs was important because in climbing, you're hanging by your fingers and your toes. So clearly, we need to be conveying some sort of legitimacy in the actual act of what climbing looks like. And it just so happened that they, they used one of the photos of me climbing as the basis model for what the emoji will look will yeah. look like on our keyboards. You can see That's kind of fun. Yeah, you can see the photo of you and then the emoji that it resulted in at our website, <laughs> cprnews.org. I noticed that you're in very bright colors in the photo. Um, is that important in creating an emoji? Like what makes a good emoji visually? Actually, it is important to consider the colors and also the angles of the figure because when you look at your keyboard, there the emojis, each of them are really small. So you have to be able to clearly identify what's going on in the picture that's being represented so that then when you look down to your keyboard and you see a smiley face and you see a mountain, it's not too abstract as you don't know what it is when it's in a miniature form. Yeah. But also, I mean, bright colors, I think that that's kind of a side byproduct as well of what I typically wear my favorite color is pink so kind of often wearing pink climbing and then the designer who 
design the emoji went off of the picture that I had provided, which happened to be in a bright color. But I think that also climbing is an expressive sport and what you wear on the wall kind of defines your style. And so I think that it's actually quite neat that the emoji is going to be in pink as well. Uh, at least for the woman, there will be a male emoji climber as mm. well. And then further down the line, there may be um, different character traits to the emoji. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're getting a picture of what it takes to create an emoji with professional climber Sasha DeJulian of Boulder. She uh, wanted a climbing emoji, and so she made it happen and wound up actually being the model for it. It'll be released along with other updates to emojis later this year. Just briefly, where is emoji a Japanese like where is emoji based? Where where are the, where are the supreme rulers of this of this world? <laughs> That's a great question. Actually, emojis did originate from Japan. Uh-huh. Uh, I believe that it's something of uh, an emoji is a picture, and it happened that emoji con was what was the original keyboard, and that's why there are when you look at your emoji keyboard different symbols that don't seem to mean anything to us. And those are symbols that we may not necessarily understand because they were part of the original set that came from Japan. But now emojis with the new advent of different sports and different activities, it's actually quite selective. So in my opinion, the fact that a climber emoji is included in the keyboard is symbolic of the growth of the sport in general. Over the last five years, I know that the sport has grown somewhere in the realm of 400% in the American gym industry alone. And while an emoji is just a symbol on a keyboard, it can actually be expanded to be something so much more meaningful of what it means to have something representative of a niche sport on such a mass market keyboard. Gosh, it's so fascinating what we perceive now as like success and stardom, you know, it used to be that you had to be on a big silver screen and now you're on the tiniest screen and you're a rock star for it. Um, So you think that this really speaks to climbing's growth. Do you get royalties or copyright or anything like that with this? (laughs) No, actually, to be honest, I just did it as like a fun side project. Um, And I was really appreciative that Jeremy was on board with it. And I mean, I think that the next step would be to have an ice climber. I think that could be really cool and to just start ad- admitting new um, forms of climber emojis to the keyboard. And to me, it wasn't really a monetary-driven project. It was more just in my hopes and aspirations as a climber, as a professional climber, is just to spread my passion to as many people as possible and bring more people to become aware of what climbing is. And so I think that the emoji was symbolic of this effort. Thank you for being with us, Sasha. Nice to speak with you and safe climbing in Spain. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on and looking forward to seeing all of you guys using the emoji. (laughs) Sasha DeJulian of Boulder is a professional rock climber who has pushed for this new climbing emoji to be released later this year. She spoke to us indeed from Spain where she is climbing. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. 
See if you recognize the melody in this piece. Waves of grain are coming to mind. A hint of America the Beautiful. This season, the Colorado Springs Philharmonic celebrates its 90th anniversary in an unusual way. The orchestra asked six composers to write their own pieces on the theme America the Beautiful. And we are hearing one of those pieces now by composer Wang Zhi. The orchestra's music director, Joseph Caballé-Dominic, is here to talk about this project. Joseph, welcome to the program. Thanks for inviting me. Let's start with this piece we've been hearing. Wang Zhi took the well-known melody and played with it. Um, How specific were you about how the composers should interpret America the Beautiful? We just say to them, you know, you have to write something to open a concert. And it has to be about America the Beautiful, so you just take whatever you want. Whatever you want. Yeah. Did they appreciate that freedom? I think so, you know, and some of them, they, they decided to copy the melody, as we heard. But some of them, they decided not to copy a single note of the melody and just get influenced by the, by the words or just by the scenario. Yeah. We will hear more versions coming up. I want to say that Catherine Lee Bates wrote the words to the original America the Beautiful after seeing the view from atop Pike's Peak outside of Colorado Springs, and it was her poem that inspired the composition. So this is um, something of a local piece, isn't it, uh, with, with you living beneath Pike's Peak in some regards? Actually, it's not like a piece. It's like a hymn, right? A it's hymn. Something, something, That's something true. that everyone knows and belongs to to the culture. Yeah, and so you feel that it's really integral to the Colorado Springs community, not just to the American community. That's true, yeah. Uh, Why don't we hear just a little bit more from the Wang Zhi version? that gets a little kind of Rhapsody in Blue, Gershwin-like. Of course. I mean, there are many influences in all of them. How did this idea come to you to ask six different composers to reinterpret this music? I mean, you know, when, when you have an, op- an option of celebrating such a big anniversary of, as a 90th anniversary, you want to have something that, you know, will keep for, for years going on. And at the beginning, there was an idea of, you know, asking someone to compose a big symphony or a big piece. But that's, you know, obviously it's big for the day, but people who cannot attend that concert, then it's not to speak. So at a certain point, we put on the table, why we don't ask, you know, different composers to write small pieces so every single concert of the season has, you know, part of this celebration. Uh, and I think that this idea resonated a lot. And, and you know, I think it's, it's a great way of, of making this anniversary. How have audiences reacted um... I wonder if they find it more accessible in some ways because they know the piece that these are inspired by. 
I'm sure they they acknowledge the piece, and but you know what makes the the, the audience laugh all of them. I mean, the reaction has been great from from the audience, and I think what they love is that the composer is the week there in corresponds with us. Oh, the, the composer is present when this is played. Definitely, I mean, they come to rehearsals. They are part of the process. You know, the orchestra meets them, and then they talk to the orchestra, and then before the concert, we have the pre-concert lectures where I introduce them to the audience, and you know, the audience can make uh, questions and can they talk about their piece, how they influence how how the imagination came and after then they can hear it so i think it's it's a very beautiful creative process and a chance really to engage with the composer why don't we hear another version this is by composer daniel kellogg it's called halcyon skies and he's a coloradan based at the university of colorado Listening to Colorado Matters, I'm Ryan Warner, and the Colorado Springs Philharmonic is celebrating its 90th anniversary with a showcase of new pieces based on America the Beautiful. That is the hymn that was inspired uh, in many ways by Pikes Peak, which soars above the Colorado Springs area. My guest is Joseph Cabaya Dominic, who is the music director at the Colorado Springs Phil. How has this been for the musicians? Uh, as I said, a very interesting process. You know, I mean, obviously they love the idea of, of uh, pieces that are new, written for them. Uh-huh. And obviously, before uh, we start a rehearsal, they get you know kind of anxious to see the parts. You know, it's it's going to be very difficult. It's going to be which is the style, which is the static that this composer is going to write. But then, you know, it's it's a process, creation process. You we we start playing the piece, and some of them they feel very excited that suddenly works. Uh, some of them, they feel like, oh, this week, this, this piece, it's going to be a little bit more difficult. But then we work, and at the end, they, they love it. So. Not all of the pieces feel quite as majestic or triumphant as what we've heard so far. So this is Enchanted Landscapes. It's a bit, I don't know, like darker. And it's by Ofer Benamats, who's based at Colorado College in Colorado Springs. This made me think of the storms that so often gather at the top of peaks and how deadly and dangerous those can be to climbers, you know? That's what he thought, because actually that's the middle power of the piece. You know, the very beginning, it's very, very slow and very quiet. Actually, he had, you know, he's, he said that he never composed a melody of 35 bar long, you know, without uh, any break. 
and the end of the piece is quiet again, and that's the middle part of it, which actually you know, he represented the storm. I, I I did not know that, so I really I, I you got it, you that. got okay, it. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad to have picked up on that. You know, this project, Joseph, made me want to listen back to the more traditional versions of America the Beautiful, mm-hmm. and in a way, made me appreciate the original piece more. Have you found a similar trajectory for yourself? I mean, obviously, definitely. When when we were in this process, uh, I I went back and I heard the original one. I said, okay, let's see how, what they will do. You know, uh-huh. and actually, it's very nice when I receive the scores that the first thing I'm looking is like, okay, is this person going to use the melody at all or not? You know, and and then I try to figure it out, and yeah, one of the persons I couldn't find a single note. I want to hear one more piece before we wrap up with some jazz influences. This is White Gleam of Our Bright Star. It's by Courtney Bryan, who is based in New Orleans. going to put a CD out? That was one of the original ideas, and I think it's going to happen, yes. Okay. Well, that's music director Joseph Caballé Domenic. He is the Colorado Springs Philharmonic Music Director, and uh, the final of the six new pieces based on America the Beautiful will play at its concerts May 20th and 21st. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. Coming up in just a bit, the trailblazing high school football player who didn't realize she was a trailblazer. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Today is 420, the unofficial holiday for fans of marijuana. And so it's fitting that a new church all about pot opens today in Denver. It's called the International Church of Cannabis. And as Corey Jones explains, it has raised questions about religious freedom and pot laws. The floor creaks under Lee Malloy as he walks past rows of pews. He sits, pauses and gazes up at the chapel ceiling filled with technicolor triangles. It is pretty much a full spectrum of very bright, vivid color, rainbow-like and very inspirational. This is the new International Church of Cannabis. Malloy co-founded it. Inside this 113-year-old church, a psychedelic mural covers the ceiling and walls. Geometric shapes form things like animal faces. The art is explained through meditation, on the sacrament and finding your own meaning in it, and that's part of what the elevationist experience is. Okay, so let's back up here. By sacrament, Malloy means using pot to have a spiritual experience. And when he says elevationists, well, that's what he and more than 30 other members call themselves. 
Elevationism is a journey of one's own self-discovery. Malloy grew up a Bible quiz champion raised in an evangelical Pentecostal church in England. He tried marijuana as a teen, but it wasn't until his mid-20s that he started to get high consistently. Around that time, Malloy explored Buddhism. Now, years later, those experiences have given way to the International Church of Cannabis. He says it's a place to relax, to think, to meditate. Don't expect weekly sermons or masses. Elevationism is not about authoritarian hierarchy. It is not about claiming you know the mind of God and telling people what to think. The church houses a religious nonprofit called Elevation Ministries, and its founders have built their lives around weed. In 2014, they advocated for legal medical marijuana in Florida. That amendment failed, so they headed to Denver. They also have a company that promotes cannabis-related businesses. But Malloy says this church isn't about profit. This is not a money-making venture in and of itself. At first, organizers hoped to make the church public. Now it's private after neighbors and city officials raised concerns over whether the church was a front for a social pot club. This comes at a time when Colorado lawmakers are trying to define rules and regulations around social pot use. Democratic Representative Dan Pabone of Denver addressed the church during a floor debate last week. I've talked to those folks who regulate these clubs in the city, and I've looked at the First Amendment and religious exemptions for the same. What they're doing seems patently illegal. But the church says it's not a social pot club. Last year, Denver voters approved public use of marijuana in permitted businesses. Details are still in the works. This week, the International Church of Cannabis agreed to make events invite-only. The city won't shut down the church as long as events stay private, says Dan Rowland. He's a spokesperson for Denver's Department of Excise and Licenses. Marijuana consumption as a sacrament or some sort of religious right does not prohibit the city from enforcing its valid and neutral laws against open and public consumption of marijuana. Roland says that the church can't grow, sell, or distribute marijuana either. Over time, religions have used different ways to achieve altered states, like fasting. And for some traditions, drugs have been a way to bring about that altered state, to open oneself to the spirit. That's Jeffrey Mahan. He's a professor of ministry, media, and culture at Denver's Iliff School of Theology. Mahan points to peyote use by Native Americans, and even churches in the 1960s that used psychedelic drugs like LSD. Mahan says these days there's a spiritual hunger that he believes is driven partly by the digital age. He says that makes religious identities more fluid. People taking on religion as more personal projects and new religious movements. And I think you have to think about this as an example of that kind of religious experimentation. International Church of Cannabis co-founder Lee Malloy insists this church isn't just a sanctuary for stoners, and he's frustrated by fears that this is a nightclub or a scam. Malloy says the elevationists plan to do community service and to be good neighbors. After all, the purpose of a modern-day church, he says, centers around community. I'm Corey Jones, CPR News. When Becca Longo committed to playing football at Adams State University in Alamosa, she didn't think it was a big deal. She knew other women had played college ball. 
In fact, she's a trailblazer. Longo joins my colleague Andrea Dukakis between classes at her high school outside Phoenix. Becca, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. There have been other women who've played college football. For example, Katie Knight at the University of Colorado Boulder. She was a kicker like you, but she was a walk-on. When you signed that letter of intent, you didn't even realize you were the first woman ever to get a scholarship to play football. That is until your coach announced it right after you signed. What was your reaction to that? Um, Everybody in the signing and who've watched the video could tell you that like my jaw hit the floor and it stayed there for a while. (laughs) And Adam State, I should say, is Division Two. Is that right? Correct. You've had more than 100 interview requests since you signed your letter of intent. You've been on ESPN and CNN. How are you coping with all this attention? Um, It's overwhelming, to say the least. Um, It's a lot of my mom's help also. I've just been sending all of the people trying to get interviews with me to my mom and sending them her email and letting her deal with it. So she's like my rock right now. Right. She's sort of like your intermediary, so you don't have to deal with all of it directly. Exactly. Uh, What's the coolest thing that's happened so far with all of this? Um, man, that's a hard question. It's like everything is just so incredibly insane right now. I think being invited to play in Larry Fitzgerald's celebrity softball game was the biggest one so far. (laughs) That sounds fun. And and that is in football, softball. You also play? No, no. It's just a charity event. Oh, okay. And how long have you been playing football? I've been playing since my sophomore year of high school, so only around like two years. And how'd you get your start? Um, I started because I was I've played soccer, like, my whole life, and I had a brother who played football, so I always grew up just watching him, and he was always, like, my inspiration and my hero. Um, But I figured, like, it's my sophomore year of high school. I've played every other sport. Why not try football? And I understand there was also a female player who was on your brother's high school team back then. Is that right? Correct. Heidi Garrett, and she still currently holds the nation's record for the longest field goal by a girl. So is she sort of a model for you? Absolutely. I remember one of the end of the year football parties. I was at the party with my mom because she was like hosting it. And I was just tugging on my brother's shirt. I'm like, Bobby, is that her? And I was just like looking around the corner the entire time just staring at her. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. We're talking with Becca Longo of Basha, Arizona. She'll be a kicker at Adams State University in Alamosa this fall. She's the first woman to receive a scholarship to play college football. Katie Nida often spoke about being objectified and discriminated against when she played. What kinds of reactions have you gotten out on the field? Um, a lot of people are really supportive, and a lot of people on the other team, don't really know that I'm a girl until the game is over with and they're shaking hands at the end. Right. But for my team, I mean, they all treat me like I'm one of the guys. They don't treat me any differently. And um, you play other sports besides football. You're also planning to play basketball at Adams State on the women's team. What's the difference between playing with women and playing with men? 
Um, probably the smell. That's the biggest one. Right. <laughs> <Just the> smell. <laughs> Are you at all worried about concussions? No, because I know that my guys are going to have my back and they're going to protect me. So (laughs) no one's going to get through. So you've had an incredible year. During your senior season, you made 35 of 38 extra point attempts as well as one field goal. Did your success during this season make you more confident that you could play in college? Um, Yeah, it did. It helped boost some confidence there. But it was really all my trainer, like just him inside, Alex and Dejas, like inside my head telling me that I could go on to the next level and I could do that. That really pushed me to strive for it. And how did you go about applying to schools, talking to coaches? Um, I just made a highlight film and I sent it out to a few colleges and Adam State was one of those replies. And, um, you know, what was it about Adam State that you liked? I just liked how persistent they were with their interest. The offensive coordinator actually came down from Alamosa to Chandler and what like came and talked to me in person in the office and I just that just showed that they were really interested in me and then when I went on my visit I just fell in love with the school and everybody there. They were just all so warm and welcoming. And I knew that that was going to be my home. And will there be some kind of transition um, between high school and college kicking? Is there a difference? Um, the field, like the goals posts are smaller. Um, so you just have to be more accurate. And I mean, some high schoolers use tees to kick off of. And in college, you just have to kick off the ground. And, um, how far out were you kicking? Um, you visited Adam State, and um, schools are allowed to work players um, when they come on visits. How far were you kicking uh, when you were there? I think I went back to like 40, 45. Wow. So, so that's pretty far compared to um, folks who are, are kickers at other schools. You're competing. Yeah. <laughs> um, and how do you, how did you do after that, after you were kicking? Um, you know, what did you do from there? Um, then we went to like one of the back offices and just talked to the coaches for a while. And then I was also on a basketball visit while I was there. So I went to the basketball game with a bunch of the football players and then we just all went and hung out. <laughs> Is it going to be tough to play two college sports? Um, I think I'll manage. I think it's going to be time that's going to be the hardest thing to deal with because the sports do overlap. And, yeah. And you got your offer to Adam State two weeks later. What was the wait like? Um, It was a lot of, like, anxiety, (laughs) to say the least. It was really, I was just anxious, like, when is it going to come? Is it ever going to come? Yeah, but that's pretty much it. And when you report to school for training camp, you won't be in high school anymore. You'll be away from home, and you'll be known as the female kicker. And that's a lot to deal with. Um, here's your high school coach at Basha High School, Gerald Todd, talking about it and talking about how he thinks she'll handle it. She understands that she's not the norm, and I think she understands that she's going to a next level. 
where people are going to be bigger, they're going to be stronger, they're going to be faster, they're going to be more competitive and more aggressive. And that's not only going to be on the field, but that's going to be in the media and up in the stands. And I think that's something that, you know, she's very aware of that she's stepping into. Uh, I think she's up for the challenge. Are you feeling the pressure dealing with all of this and then being successful on the field? Um, if I am feeling any pressure, then that's good because I stri- I thrive in that. It's my favorite thing. Um, but, I mean, yeah, there is a little bit of more pressure now that I realize it. Like, all these eyes are going to be on me. So it's just going to make me want to go out there and train twice as hard just so I can prove myself. You mentioned you've had strong relationships with your high school coaches. Um, what do you expect with your college coach? How will that relationship work? Uh, I love all of them. They're so cool and like down to earth. I feel like it's not going to be any different. Have younger girls approached you? Um, what do you say to them about you know, the game of football and potentially playing in college? Uh, I don't really talk to them about playing football, like, as itself. But I, like, usually I just tell them, like, just do what you love to do. And if that is playing football, then I want them to go out and pursue that. But I just want them to do what they love and not listen to, like, any outside factors, like all the negativity and stuff. Do you feel in a way like you're carrying the mantle for other women that you have to be a model? Yes. A lot of people are telling me that I'm inspiring all of these young girls. I feel like they're inspiring me to be a better person because I know that they're watching me and all their eyes are looking up. Becca, thanks for joining us. Of course. Thank you for having me. That was Becca Longo. She's a kicker for Basha High School in Chandler, Arizona. She recently became the first woman to receive a football scholarship to an NCAA Division II school. She'll be attending Adams State University in Alamosa, Colorado this fall. Longo spoke with my colleague Andrea Dukakis. There are all kinds of ways to reach Colorado Matters to stay in touch after listening to what you've heard. You can follow us on Twitter at Colorado Matters. I'm at CPR Warner. We're on Facebook, CPR News. And then a whole cadre of ways to get in touch on our website, CPRnews.org. Click Contact Us at the top of the page or comment beneath individual articles that you read there. Again, it's CPRnews.org. Finally today, the members of the Denver band Get Along met in high school in Monument, Colorado. Nicholas and Kara Yanez are now married and have spent the last five years exploring genres from synth pop, synth pop that is, to punk rock. The duo will release a new EP later this year, but we have a preview. This is the song Exodus, recorded during their visit to the CPR Performance Studio. Don't know if I can be what you want me to be, but I'm sure as hell gonna
is the Denver-based duo Get Along, wrapping up Colorado Matters for today from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Thanks for spending time with us.